taking a look inside the lives and minds of some of the world's most inspiring thought leaders. And when I was younger, 21, 22, and I got into the fitness industry, slipping into the character of Roman, what, that was the alter ego. People living inspiring lives and motivating others. Why do I feel like no matter what I achieve, I'm not as good as other people? Why can't I accept praise? And you ping pong around and finally you get to this core wound that you're just, we're fundamentally terrified. Brought to you by Athletic Greens. This is the Inspiring Lives Podcast with Gary Whistle. I'm Gary Burtwistle, and welcome to the Inspiring Lives Podcast, a show that looks inside the minds of some of the world's foremost thought leaders to discover their recipe for success. And this week, we head to the world of the business entrepreneur. So welcome to the Inspiring Lives Podcast, brought to you by the most complete supplement for a better you, Athletic Greens. Our guest this week, John Romanello, is an author and an angel investor who consults to entrepreneurs, to people who want to improve their communication skills and potentially increase their revenues through writing. John is very well known across a lot of different industries, having written hundreds of articles covering topics like business, marketing, fitness, and self-development. It really is all about helping entrepreneurs build and scale businesses through writing and branding. As with a lot of successful people that we've had here on the show, it's not been a comfortable journey for John, but as you'll hear, he'll tell how he uses his past challenges as fuel to help us all make our own dent in the universe. John, welcome to the Inspired Loves podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. John, when you meet somebody, how do you like to describe what you do? That is a question I've been trying to answer at every Thanksgiving since about 2009. I think that the true test of an entrepreneur is if if your family can accurately describe what you do for a living, you have either succeeded to an extent very few people ever will, or your job is not nearly as impressive or cool as you think it is. Um, I... Uh, but I have, I have gotten I have gotten better at this because of the the character limits imposed on dating app bios, and so I can't be as long winded as I once was. So the the easiest way to uh, to describe it is, I am an author. I write books and tell stories, and in addition to that, I own a consulting company that helps everyone from entrepreneurs and influencers to mid sized companies scale their businesses, and streamline operations. But most importantly, I help people see the value of the written word and ideally make more money using it. So John, there's no doubt your life has seen a lot of change and you are now helping people to make change. And if I take you right back that when you were a kid, there was a day where you looked in the mirror and you said you saw a chubby kid. But on this particular day, you decided to make a change. Why, why was that day different? Why did you step in and actually take action that day as opposed to the day prior where you saw a chubby kid and did nothing? That's a great question. Um, so this was <clears throat> um, when I was 19 years old and it was, I believe, the end of my freshman year at university. And there... 
there was uh, just this mismatch. And, you know, I'd, I'd always been what you would call a thick kid. I'd always had a heavy musculature and not a high degree of leanness. But when I was in high school, I, I played sports. And so it was mitigated by my activity level. And I think that it just took that amount of time from beginning that, that semester or beginning beginning in August of, of that year up until, um, I guess it was April and May, to just slowly add enough weight that the visual difference was striking. And, you know, if I recall, the, the thing that did it was I, so I was, I was really at the time of my, and still now, I was very much into uh, pop punk and emo music bands like Newfound Glory and Less Than Jake, et cetera. And so I had gone home for spring break and come back to school. And while I was home, I, I put together a box of clothing to bring back to university. And I was getting ready to go out and I put on a less than Jake t-shirt. It was a light blue t-shirt and I'll never forget the, the styling of the, the, the way that the, the band's name had been written. And it was the way that shirt fit in particular, the way that, because it was a light colored shirt, the way that it hugged my body. And so I, I think that with anything else, you know, you have a type of, uh, a distance gives you a type of objectivity. And so when you see yourself in the mirror every day, you're not noticing the changes because they're gradual. But when someone hasn't seen you for a while and they see you, that's the big change. If you, you know, when you, when you go on a weight loss journey and you look at your before picture relative to an after picture 12 weeks later. And so this shirt had, you know, I had a previously existing reference point for it of feeling like I looked good in the shirt, which I had not worn at that point for maybe 10 months. And now putting it on and seeing for the first time, I, things have changed it had just sort of escalated to the point where now it created a new visual reference point that really sort of just created that that inciting event. It's interesting because you just mentioned that you naturally had quite a thick, thick set physique and you then at some point you stepped into bodybuilding and that became successful for you. What I'm curious about is what did bodybuilding bring to your world that helped you cope with some of the drama you faced in your childhood? What, what gap did that fill for you? A few things. Firstly, bodybuilding is a, it is a sport of great uh, discipline, but also predictable outcomes. It is very repetitive. And if you are dedicated to it and, and you give to it, your outcomes will be pretty pretty predictable with regard to um, your, if you follow the diet well, you're going to get leaner. If you, if you do the training, you're going to get bigger, particularly if, if you have what I would say is genetic privilege. But with regard to the deeper stuff, there was this, you know, having, having grown up in an abusive household, there was this feeling of wanting to be safe. On the, on the top level, my 19 and 20-year-old sort of, you know, lizard brain, this, this sort of sex brain, I, I very much equated it to I want to get fitter, I want to look better, I want to be more successful with women. And that was certainly there. But if you dig deeper into the psychology of the wound that I had, that I had 
been given when I was younger, it was very much a feeling of wanting to be safe in my own body and being bigger and stronger, not only created a, an armor and a weapon that uh, was capable of, of absorbing a lot of damage and dealing a lot of damage. It also created this outwardly aggressive image of someone you would not want to attack. But on a deeper level than that, you get to that sort of inner child who had grown up feeling completely out of control, even with regard to his own body. And being able to to shape and mold my own corporeal form to bend it to my will and make it look the way I wanted it to look, that was a type of reclamation of the control that had been taken from me uh, my entire childhood. And, and so it really, bodybuilding served these three purposes. You know, it served this, this top level sort of ego driven purpose, this, this very, you know, like the sex and vanity, which was, if you look back over the course of my career, that's very much sort of what the, you know, a lot of the writing was about, but then it also made me feel safe and then also gave me back this, it, it, it inverted my trauma in a way. And so it really healed me on those three levels. It provided that trifecta of things, which is why I took to it so much. And, and it didn't just become this thing that I did. Bodybuilding was not a thing that I did. A bodybuilder was a thing that I was. And for a very long time, it was a big part of my personal identity and my sense of self. I, I'm going to pull on a few different threads here. But before I go into the the identity part of it, you you just talked about the physical abuse you faced as a kid. And I don't really want to spend too much time here, but I do have a question about it because, and I don't want to under, underplay this because it actually got pretty bad. I mean, you had a collapsed lung, you actually had a cracked skull. So, I mean, this is this is serious, serious physical abuse, yet you've said that at that point you felt like you should downplay it. Why Why did you downplay it? Why, why were you kind of masking it in your own mind? And did bodybuilding help help in some way to take this mask off that physical abuse? Mm. Downplaying it in my own life as it happened and immediately after, you know, in those in those preteen and teenage years, that late adolescence, uh, that felt necessary for my survival. When you grow up in an abusive household, you are you are taught to lie and to hide it and to protect your abusers. And that just sort of gets built into your consciousness and your programming. And then even removed from that situation, when I was no longer, when my mother and I were no longer living with my father and I was no longer in the the, the immediacy of physical danger. And there, there wasn't this feeling of, if I tell, I'll get in trouble and this will happen again. You've also got this shame pre-installed around it. And as a 37-year-old as man sitting here, the idea of, of looking at a 13-year-old boy and hearing him say something like, I don't want anyone to know that my dad kicked the crap out of me because that makes me look bad or stupid or weird or weak. You know, I would, I would obviously hold that, that young man and, and tell him that none of it was his fault and it was okay. But as the 13-year-old boy, you're just filled with shame that your life is full of this hurricane this this whirlwind and this this terrible thing and you're comparing yourself to the the seemingly docile home lives and and the seemingly very loving fathers of your friends and you can't feel anything other than 
sad that you don't have that and and shame about what you do have and so you downplay it and like all people who experience trauma you learn or i learned to bury it deeper and deeper not just bury the things that happened to me but bury the person to whom they had happened and it would take a really long time to unpack those and then later when i you know began writing and uh was becoming a a, a a public person in the fitness industry and then eventually moving into the entrepreneurial space, et cetera, to, to whatever degree I can claim to have some low level of notoriety. Uh, it wasn't overly relevant at the time, you know, when I was, uh, because, you know, this, you know, viewing it now through 2019 eyes, I, I didn't perhaps see the opportunity in 2010 to, really start the conversation and help a lot of people feel safer by saying, I have gone through this as well. And shame and um, everything attached to it with regard to the things that have happened to you, you, you can't just shut it off. It's, it's a degradation over time. It's a slow erosion of the feeling that what happened is your fault or makes you wrong. That if this person who hurt you could do that, if this person who supposedly loved you could break your, you know, crack your skull and, and break a rib and collapse your lung, then what might the rest of the world do to you if they knew that such things were doable? If they, you know, it, it, it almost it almost felt like inviting more. I think it's a really important conversation, John, because I think we all carry scars or wounds of some sort. And the way you described it, I heard you say that you were you were broken <clears throat> you were like a you were shattered like glass which i thought was a really a really visual contextual way of framing where you're at and i'm just wondering with that shattered glass that you were and you've now gone about putting that back together again if if you are near that bag of shattered glass today how do you protect yourself today from getting cut because you had a lot to deal with but today, when I bring it up, when you think about it in a quiet moment, how do you protect yourself today from going back and being wounded by that shattered glass? I think that exposure is the only thing that can give you the the real safety. Um, you know, if, if you look at... at all and any traumatic experience as this item that's in this, you know, I, and, and the metaphor that I like to use is, is as you said, a velvet bag with a, a shattered item in it. Over time, the handling of those pieces of glass, they get dull like sea glass. You also develop a familiarity with them and learn their shape, learn how not to cut yourself. And there's also more and more distance. The more you change, the more work you do, the more, evolution, the further along in your own evolution you go, uh, you create, or I, I have created the objectivity where I can look now at the things that have happened through a different lens and not only do I not feel the fear of them or the dread of them, I, I no longer really identify as the person to whom they happened. And when you really court and create the objectivity that I have, it allows you to look at the people on the other side and your abusers and, and sort of make them characters in this story and 
characters need backstories. Monsters are not just monsters. You know, very, very few people in life are trolls or gremlins or ogres who just by their very nature are there to harrow the unsuspecting peoples of the world. We are all of us, you know, creatures of, of the same star stuff. And, and however we've gotten to where we are is why we are the way we are. And when I was, a, when I was born, it, it simply was not the case that somebody placed me in my father's arms and he looked down at his newborn son and thought to himself, man, I, I cannot wait to crack this kid's skull open. That's not a thing. And so it's not until much later in life through healing through storytelling, healing through, through plant medicine, healing through therapy, that I was able to step back and, and take myself out of it and no longer be that seven-year-old boy who was in that situation, but rather look at the character of, of on the other side of the screen and, and think, what must have happened to my father? What must he have gone through? What series of events must have created the reference points for violence that he, when angry, could be led internally, emotionally, to the decision that beating his seven-year-old son and hospitalizing him was the appropriate response. And, you know, so when, when you look at it like that, it's more, I, you know, I'm, I'm able to feel great empathy for him because that's, that's a tremendous amount of pain. You have to be in, you know, hurt people, hurt people, and you have to be in an overwhelming amount of pain to respond to any stimulus by harming a child. As to how I feel, I, I do not, I don't feel, um, I don't feel unsafe. I don't, I don't feel um, the danger of, of having most of these discussions. I've worked through a lot of them. And at this point, they're just things that have happened to a person I no longer am. And then in my day-to-day -day life, I have processed enough of the trauma and worked enough through it. You know, it, it, it really, for the longest time, especially once I, I had done the bodybuilding thing, once I had walked around at 200 pounds and I had done that for enough years where my experience of the world was that every person I encountered looked at me with either awe or as though I was a threat. Um, and I had taken, you know, I'd done, I had wrestled and I had taken Jeet Kune Do and some Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And I, I felt physically safe from the outside world in my own body. The, I, the greatest danger to me was me, the, the mental health stuff that was going on, my, my propensity to fall into deep states of depression and potentially have suicidal ideation, but sort of less, um, less fatally, but certainly as, as deleterious to my life was the ingrained patterns I have to harm myself through acting out and the behaviors that I enacted, which inculcated all sorts of, of really terrible repercussions in my personal life, things from infidelity to, um, you know, what I, what I would now categorize possibly, if not sex addiction, then certainly treating, treating sex as a, as a numbing agent and the decisions behind those behaviors 
very clearly now in retrospect are the decisions of a person who doesn't know how to exist without a wound or who simply does not believe they deserve to be happy. And all people who suffer trauma, once they are no longer in danger from that trauma in a, in a physical sense, they're in great danger from themselves and their own um, coping mechanisms. If I could ask you about a coping mechanism, and this is something you've said a couple of times already during the show. I'll just set this up. I interviewed Todd Herman, who wrote The Alter Ego Effect, about creating alter egos. One of my favorite interviews of all time, because I really buy into the concept. And what I, I, if I sum up The Alter Ego Effect for people who may not have heard Todd or had the privilege of reading his book, it's about creating a character as a human or a character as an animal, whatever it may be, that you you relate to their identity and character you can step into to, to get, take you beyond perceived barriers or things that may be getting in the way because you step into that alter ego and it says, well, that's not me. What are those characteristics? Beyonce stepping on stage as Sasha Fierce and so on. I've heard you say a few times during the show, I don't identify with that person. I wasn't bodybuilding. I was a bodybuilder. Then you just said, I'm a person who would. I'm just curious about your view of alter egos because one thing you did say in an interview is you talked about when you were bodybuilding, you were almost putting on armor. Did you did you have that conscious alter ego idea without articulating the way that Todd does? Did you have that alter ego concept in your mind as a coping mechanism? Do you still do that today? Like, how do you qualify the things you've talked about in terms of identity with alter ego? Was it a conscious thing for you? And so I, I think that like anything else, there is um, a way to do something <clears throat> that is conscious and therefore it can be wielded judiciously and, and for great benefit. And then there's the other side of it, which is if, if it is unconscious, and you're not aware of it, it can become damaging. And when I was younger, 21, 22, and I got into the fitness industry, um, slipping into the character of Roman, what, that was the alter ego. I felt safe. I only, you know, in those, in those early internet days of 2003, when less of your life was on online and you know, you really only had to show people exactly what you wanted. And so this character of Roman, who did not have trauma, who, who was, you know, this good-looking, Jack shredded, happy-go-lucky, New York, um, you know, emo, like all of the thing, all of the skills that I accrued to make myself feel like I was worthwhile, slipping into that character was easy. And, you know, he wasn't, just an alter ego he was almost uh, an automaton that you know that i could inhabit this thing that would keep me safe and this was all unconscious and it wasn't until much later when i really started to do the work and actively separate that that i realized the the, the shield that i had created with roman by by only showing the most positive aspects of my personage uh, you know, because, because the best lies are the ones that are based on truth. 
And everything about Roman was real. Some of it was a little, you know, some of him was a little bit exaggerated. He wasn't as happy as, as he made out. Uh, but there was so much that was held back. Once that I began to share more and more about who John is, that made me want to do that uh, to a greater degree. And I was able to sort of set that, that robot down. But the more that I have done the work in terms of really deep psychological, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, plant medicine, meditation, I have begun to look at my, the recipe for a human being, the identity of a human and you know, that your ego. And I, and I don't mean ego in the, in the sort of the sense of the way people use it pejoratively to, to discuss arrogance or conceit or vanity. I mean the actual part of your psyche that recognizes itself as an independent entity, your sense of who you are as a me. And the recipe for that is all of the things that have happened to you. So the content of your life, the history, and then the way that you relate to it. And that structure, that ego structure, that context that crystallizes early on, usually around a wound and everything that you do, that the, the programming gets pushed through that lens. And when I say things like I'm no longer that person, it's because I have actively distanced myself from and, and, and broken down all of the component pieces of that ego and stepped away from it. And now after having restructured them, I, I, you know, don't really identify as the person who went through a lot of these things you know, the, you, you undergo this change. So while Todd talks about the alter ego effect and that is, that's sort of a, uh, a light switch, you know, this, this costume, you know, in Todd's case, uh, these glasses that he can put on to be, you know, Todd, the presenter. And, and or the, the bracelet that he puts on to become Todd the father, these totems, I think, I think that, that that is a conscious decision wielded truly accurately, and, but it's top level. At the deeper level, who you are, that piece of self, uh, you can, that is, it is more fictile and malleable than perhaps people think. And, and with the directed insight and the directed um, work to cultivate objectivity and get a clear view of exactly what that ego is, you can, you can then begin to make changes to it because you are less attached to it. And that is really, that has been my work over the past 18 months or so. If I extend that, John, another coping me mechanism you talk about, and this is something you did. And what I'm curious about is whether you would suggest it as a coping mechanism today to someone who was going through something similar. You said that when you were bodybuilding, it gave you a sense of self-worth, which you've covered. But also what you said to yourself was, I can be the best at this and that will be enough. Is that what you did back then with how you approached bodybuilding to say, I can control this. There are certain processes, systems I can put in place. I control this and I can be the best at this, which would give me self-worth and that would be, and that would be something. Is that a frame that you would recommend to someone who is maybe not exactly the same situation, but trying to recover from something, trying to find this new identity, trying to leave the shattered glass behind? 
Is that something you would recommend and talk someone through today? I'll, I'll answer that question, but I want to just first say that my answer is entirely immaterial because whatever advice I would give to that person, I'm almost certain would not be heeded. Uh, I like to say that wisdom is the lesson you need right after you need it. And there's <clears throat> when a person is, is coming from a background of trauma or, or uh, you know, they, they, for whatever reason, don't have a strong sense of self-worth, whatever it is that they latch onto that they believe will give them that, it has been my experience they need to pursue that and they need to learn the lesson of its hollowness for themselves. There are no combination of words, nothing I can say to tell a person who is who who truly believes that making a million dollars is going to fill the hole in them. They need to just make the million dollars and then when they get there and that goalpost moves to two million or five million or whatever it is, then they they can make the decision for themselves. And some people never do. Some people just keep going and, and chasing the money and it's never enough. But you can't reason a person out of a position or belief they didn't reason themselves into. And uh, to just close that loop with just yet another aphorism, there are so many things that cannot be taught, uh, but nothing that could not be learned. And most people will only embody that lesson after learning it and they have to learn it on their own. There's, there's nothing that I can say to a person who believes that having six pack abs is going to make them happy that having six packs ab, six pack abs won't make them happy. The only thing I can do is help them get the six pack abs and along the way be teaching them questions to ask and ways to self audit and uh, ways to, to maintain the thing. You know, you, you can't, you can't tell people that the grass isn't greener until they're standing. It's just, that's just human nature. If we just, Something you mentioned at the head of the show, you talked about your writing as part of what you do today. And you've become really well known for not just the content, but also your style of writing, which is excellent. In a blog, you wrote three things I hate and still do. And one of those things you talked about was writing by hand. Do you still do that? Is that something you step into? Yes. Uh, the reason that I hate writing by hand is because I have terrible handwriting and I, because I identify so strongly as a writer and I, and I have this fascination with historical writers, I am, I have this thing where I'm, I'm comparing my, you know, like my griffinage, this, this chicken scratch to, uh, you know, the beautiful flowing hands of Alexander Hamilton or, or whomever. And it's, it, um, uh, it, it's something that I actively try to work. If I, if I really put in effort, I can keep my handwriting neat and, I, and I'd like to send handwritten thank you cards and uh, little notes to people. But it really does take considerable effort, physical and mental, to make it what I would considerably consider to be um, attractive. And, and I acknowledge in this moment that the disconnect is this isn't this is where my ego lives, right? Because I regard myself as a very fine writer, and to have the 
the visibility of that be so ugly and the words themselves be so pretty and, and well considered feels like a disconnect. And it just feels like if I'm an exceptional writer, my handwriting should be exceptional. And I want, you know, you eat with your eyes and I want the, the, the readability and the visibility of it to, to match the, the messaging. But as far as writing by hand as a, as a daily practice, there are so many reasons to do it from greater retention to ease of, of communication. You just, you don't hit backspace when you write by hand, you just kind of keep going. And it's a, it's a much more effective way to outline. So I, I write by hand every day. Do you know, it's interesting. You just mentioned some of the great writers historically. And when I was listening and reading a lot of your stuff, it's really ironic you should mention it because somebody who came to mind for me that I wanted to ask you about was Maya Angelou, who was the wonderful poet, uh, activist, radio host, author. And Maya Angelou loved words. And she said, words mean more than what is set down on paper. It takes the human voice to infuse them with deep meaning. And Maya Angelou was someone who greatly valued words, who had her own traumatic backstory. You seem to have the same love of words, John. You seem to share that same view of how precious words and how they come together, their meaning, how they look. Is that fair? I would, I, I'm not certain that I would ever deign to put myself alongside Miss Angelou uh, in, in any category, but we do share the same opinion and love of words. Yes. So somebody hears this, understands that love of words, wants to get started. Something I heard you say, which I thought was really cool, is that anyone, anyone who gets familiar with your own process for writing one thing you would you advised was to lower the stakes. Is that when you are talking to somebody about writing, storytelling, getting their first book out, is that still something that you today think is an important part is to lower the stakes? Yeah, I, it just I, I think that um, oh God, I'm gonna I, I forget who said this is a great quote, and I'm for the life of me, I cannot remember the source. It's a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. And the, um, when I, when I, when I say lower the stakes, I'm not advising people like, don't try to get your book published. It just, that, that is a piece of advice that I give to get people out of their heads. Uh, in the war of art, Stephen Pressfield says that the, there's a, a secret real writers know that wannabe writers don't. And the secret is this, it, what's hard is not writing. What's hard is sitting down to write. And every, every writer I know at some point experiences this stoppage where they just can't get words on the page. And we have all of these blocks in our head and we're judging the words as they come up. And the more, emotional weight we give to the project or the page or the thing or whatever it is, the, the harder it is to push through the resistance and write because we are telling ourselves we're living in this story that the writing has to be great, that it has to be brilliant, but it doesn't. The writing just has to be done. And so lowering the stakes can mean 
writing by hand instead of writing on the computer. So many, so many people, when they sit down to type and they're looking at a blinking cursor in a blank document, there is something terrifying about that because it feels like this is work. Whereas if they are asked a question about that same topic by a friend in a text message, they could sit there and set their thumbs, their thumbs to tapping and in 20 minutes write 800 eloquent words. But they couldn't do that in five hours staring at the screen. And so lowering the stakes is really about getting out of your own way and creating circumstances under which you can write without telling yourself that you can't. It may, may for you be conscious or unconscious, but if I look through your career thus far, writing, fitness, business, entrepreneurialism, bodybuilding, resilience, wellness, fashion. Pat Flynn, who wrote How to Be Better at Almost Everything, talks about skill stacking. And it's not becoming an expert, but it's becoming very, very good at a particular discipline that you can stack on top of other disciplines so that you have a lot of different things as a generalist to call upon and you can start to combine things. And I think David Epstein talked about the same thing in his more recent book called Range, where you become a generalist as opposed to a specialist. Was that conscious for you? And what's the next skill that you want to stack on top of what you know? What's the next thing you want to learn to become good at to allow you to have a broader range of things the generalist to be able to call upon to write and share? I don't believe that it was conscious. I, 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 I think maybe I, I lucked out. You know, I, I, I spend, <clears throat> having spent so much time in the fitness world and trained a lot of athletes, I have had the pleasure of seeing people who were at the absolute top 1% of 1% in the world at a highly specific skill that has absolutely no benefit outside of a particular context, right? Like you train a world-class hockey player and you take him off. Like when is he ever going to need to know how to skate backwards really, really fast? That is a skill that is only good in one context. And that goes for pretty much most of, most of that sport. And um, when you look at more uh, sort of global gross mechanical processes, running, jumping, you know, sprinting, swimming, those things have a lot of utility elsewhere. And I, I look at everything in life from that perspective. I was very lucky to fall in love with words, particularly with writing and storytelling, because no matter what I do, those have carryover. Storytelling is a truly priceless skill. It makes you a better parent. If you're teaching something to your child, it makes you a better teacher. It makes you a better coach, a better consultant. It certainly allows you to be a better writer. It makes you a more interesting date. It, 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 it helps you just be a better friend. And, uh, it also, you know, becoming proficient at storytelling helps you become more analytical about stories and you can enjoy television and film and books more and have greater conversations about them. Writing is, is something we do every day, you know, between Facebook and Instagram and email, et cetera. Uh, it's the way that we communicate. There are so many skills that have tremendous utility that I, I you know, I think coding, for example, if I, if I were to um, answer this question and, and sort of like, what skill could I, could I 
develop or possess that would probably make me a generalist that has the greatest sort of leverageable uh, is the greatest leverageable asset. It would be understanding coding that would just help in so many things in, in the way that I'm able to experience the world of technology. Um, my, my baseline level of, of niches is, is so, is so low that, you know, that would be a very, very long journey, but uh, something like, or learning another language beyond that, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging for me to, to say, but I, I think um, skills that, there, there are so many things that I do regularly, marketing or branding that I could get better at. But if we're talking about new skills that I would pick up that would be stackable with everything else I've already done, I, I would probably say that coding is has got to be the one. It's funny, when I hear you during this interview and read about the stuff that you've written or hear in interviews, you, you're a very visual guy. Because you even said you like whiskey because you liked how it looked in the glass. And anyone who looks at your Instagram feed will say it's very visual. It's, it's, it's obviously important for how you physically look, how you put fashion together. Your clothes are important. So, And you've mentioned the word how it looks and I could see a lot through this interview. Is that part of your writing process, John? Do you need to be able to sit down and see exactly that picture in your mind before you commit it to words? No, no, no. It's the opposite. It's trying to, it's part of the editing process, not the writing process to optimize readability to uh, it's an interesting sort of duality of when I read something out loud, I want the tonality of it and the tempo of it uh, to have a certain flow. I'm certainly not writing an iambic pentameter, but I do want there to be, um, if not a musicality to it, I, I do want the cadence to be evocative of emotion. So there's a sound quality to it, but looking at it on the page, it becomes, it, it, it's actually not just important artistically and visually for me, it's also, there's a, a practical element to it. Now that we are spending so much time reading on our screens, um, creating high readability of the content just makes sure that people will consume it. And so I want it to be attractive. I want it to be pretty. I want the fonts to be crisp. I want the, the words to, uh, to flow well uh, audially. And I, I want there to be minimal redundancy, except when it's intentional. And I, I really, I love, I, again, I love words. I love the way they feel in the mouth. I love the way they look on paper. I love finding sentences and just thinking this is a great, this is a great written sentence. This feels really good. You can read it in your head saying it out loud. Wouldn't work. I love to play with assonance. I love to play with, um, alliteration. Uh, I love the way that it looks and the way that it sounds. And I, I really, um, yeah. So, so the way that the, the visual presentation of the content is very, very important to me, but I don't start with that. It's where I end up. It's the, it's the final of five editing steps that create great readability. So you're a visual auditory guy, obviously those, those two senses work. And, and I'm, I'm going to just flip across to something you said earlier in the show and pick up on the tonality word. You said that as part of your misspent youth, you were deep in what you called the scene, the music scene. And that was time where you 
prototypically loved the early 2000 era of pop punk and emo bands, which you said earlier, uh, like Blink-182, Dashboard Confessional, Brand New. Then you said, nothing feels real for me until I write about it. So I did. Over time, I turned out to be a dab hand as a lyricist and committed more songs to my journal than I can possibly count. The question I've got for you is, what's a song that if I played the song and listened to the lyric, best sums up who John Romanello is? Who John Romanello is right now? Oh, that's impossible. Um, So uh, what I will say is, Oh God, this is so challenging. So this music was so important to me during my formative years. And I I fully believe that brand new is the greatest indie rock band of all time. And in particular that their sophomore album, Deja Entendu is quite possibly the greatest album of all time, or at least it is to me. And even now going back to that album, listening to individual tracks, I can, I can see myself growing and maturing through the track list. You know, there are, so, so a lot of that record is very sort of like, you know, like outwardly whiny um, or, or at least like brooding melancholy, this person hurt me. And that is very much where I was in my early twenties. And um, <clears throat> then there's later tracks, which are, you know, very evocative of the lamentation of getting older and, and sort of the the power of nostalgia and feeling like you want to stay young forever. So there's there's so many songs that bring you back to a specific place that is this that's the, the power of music. And to to find one song that sums up who I am now in this moment would be so so very challenging because I don't, I don't really listen to a lot of music that's being produced right now with the exception of some EDM. And so, so my playlist is stuck in 2003 and most of the songs typical of that genre are very adolescent and, um, you know, like they're full of either blame or self-loathing or both. And so, you know, as I view myself now, a more healed and developed 37-year-old man, there's not a lot that I, I personally identify with. And when I listen to those, I'm listening, you know, with the, the heart and the ears of a, a younger person. But there's, um, you know, there, there's no anger in me the way there once was. Once was. There's, not, there's no angst. There's no resentment and blame for the things that didn't go my way or the people who left. And given that, I think if we, if we had to like sort of swing over, then it would be like Dashboard uh, or, or Jimmy Eat World who have written songs that I would say are happier and they might, they might hold up more appropriately. But um, yeah, that, it, that's, it's a really challenging question because, you know, the, the, the misalignment of the the message of so many of the songs with which I, I so strongly identified versus, you know, to, to who I am now is it's, it is a vast gulf. And I, it, it's interesting, you know, cause I, again, I'm a child of the nineties and early two thousands. And when I listen to late nineties, early two thousands gangster rap, when I listen to Snoop Dogg, I have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to sort of 
like allow for the, the blatant overt misogyny to not affect me and to just be like, it's just a good song. <laughs> and so it, it's a really interesting thing. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I will, I will think on that question. I will, it will be my writing prompt for tomorrow to find a song that I love and with which I identify in this moment. You can come back to me. It's possibly Taylor Swift. It might be a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> Uh, just to close this out, a couple of quick things. Something that I find with your journey now, John, and hearing you talk is you seem to have this deep desire to be of service to others in many different forms. And I'm just curious to know with all the people you meet now, you interact with, you things you see, people you have conversations with, what you hear, what's, what's a hidden fear that you think is inside people that's not discussed enough. Do you ask everyone that question? <laughs> you should. It's a good one. I was I was gonna I was gonna cheat and ask for a couple of other answers. A hidden fear. I don't think it's that hidden. I think I think deep down we are all afraid that we're not going to be accepted for who we are. And then one layer layer below that, we project the importance of other people's opinions and um, or we, we magnify the importance of other people's opinions and fueling that fear that we won't be accepted as we are is this belief that it matters because even if it were true that we would not be accepted as we are by other people it, it, that doesn't have to matter it, you can accept yourself as you are um We've all got a core wound, you know? We, we all have this thing that happened to us, and it doesn't have to be massive trauma, the kind I went through. It can be something as simple as I fear abandonment because I had, um, you know, I have a younger brother, and uh, when, as soon as he was gone, all of the attention that I was accustomed to receiving was now given to him. And so I, you know, whatever it is, you know, our ego crystallizes around some sort of core wound. And at the heart of it though, all wounds are the same wound. We are just, we are afraid that we are not worthy of love and digging to that level is, is challenging because first you have to dig through the, the, the top layer stuff, which is why do I feel like I'm, no matter what I achieve, I'm not as good as other people. Why can't I accept praise? And, and you ping pong around and finally you get to this core wound that you're just, we're fundamentally terrified that we're not okay as we are. And that, and, and this is, this is my, you know, a lot of my work right now is uh, talking about the stuff that men need to speak about. And it's, we are, we are conditioned, we're socialized to be achievement based to, to win love and validation and respect through the things we achieve, the school we go to, the car we drive, the job we have, the money we make, the women we fuck. And we, we are taught this. No, no, no boy is born, is born with this installed in their head. And then we're, we're taught this, we exhibit this, and then the world turns on us and tells us that we're not good because we behave this way. And so the thing is, None of us know how to be. We're so terrified to do the wrong thing. And we're told that doing the wrong thing is truly dangerous. It's, it's, you can't, 
we are we are raised in this binary where if you're not winning you're losing we're doing the wrong thing is tantamount to failing and we're terrified of it and we're terrified of just being wrong and since you can't always be right that just equates to terrified to being terrified of just being and being yourself and saying i don't know and i think that the more you dig in and begin to detach from that the safer you can begin to feel because if you do that in the community you do that with a tribe, if you do that in ceremony, if you do that with, you know, over time and slowly get more and more vulnerable while at the same time allowing the people around you to do the same, then you'll see that we have the same fear. But the biggest thing is always ask yourself, this thing that I'm afraid of, this fear that I have, this fear of people judging me, do I judge other people the way I'm afraid of them judging me? Am I worried you know, it's like I'm, I spend so much time thinking if, um, you know, like, I don't know if the, 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 like when men, men have a lot of money shame. So where people have a lot of money shame, like if I <clears throat> if I admit that some restaurant is too expensive for me for where I am in my life right now, are my friends going to reject me? Just ask yourself, would you reject them for that ridiculous fucking thing? Of course not. No. But, you know, we, we, we just invert and project and we're just afraid people won't accept us. And so we, we just keep trying to achieve. Just to close this out, I spoke with Akshay Nanavate, who served in the military, has written a book of recent times called Fearvana. And he said that he finds beauty in adversity. And it was such a beautiful saying, and I think it's something that kind of relates to your journey so far, John. And what I wanted to sort of close out with is that even as an eight-year-old child, with all the abuse you faced, you still had dreams. And you've talked about the fact that as an eight-year-old, you would, even with all that going on, you found the time. And there's, there's beauty in that, that with all you faced, you still had that time to sit down and believe in dreams. Do you remember what your dreams were back at that time? Um, I mean, by by dreams, do you do you actually mean like the you know what was happening in my psyche when I was asleep, or more like my daydreams, my my hopes, my fantasies, etc.? Hopes and fantasies. I mean, I spent a lot of time like wanting to fight dragons. That was a big thing for me, really. Like deep, deep in Dungeons and Dragons and Zelda, and really just hoping. Like I, I, I was the kid who prayed for something very similar to a zombie apocalypse. And I knew in my heart that I was the chosen one and that when it came to it, I would be the one to stand against the vampires or the zombies, the werewolves and um, unraveling. Man, that took a long time to get over that one. It wasn't going to happen. And that two, like, I'm probably not the guy. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is Neil Stevenson in a book called Snow Crash. And he says, until a man is about 25 years old, he's still thinks that he still thinks every so often that under the right set of circumstances, he could be the baddest motherfucker alive. And I think that for children of trauma, you create this fantasy world for yourself to inhabit because there has to be a reason. There has to be a reason you're going through all of this stuff. And it has to be because you're destined for great things that like you're, you're being toughened up for something, but you know, um, when I was a kid, I, I just, I wanted to, my, it's crazy. I just wanted to be happy. I just, I just wanted to feel safe and be happy. And for me, um, I, I really books became the thing when, you know, and, and this, this is the thing that gets told in all these, these interviews about my 
story and particularly as a writer. When I was eight years old, I, I told my mother I wanted to write a book and she asked me why. And I said, because books make me happy and I want to make other people happy. And that's, you know, really adorable if you leave it at that. But when you look at that in context and you realize that books were a form of escapism for me and they were the way that I could cope with everything that was going on around me, I really formed this attachment to the idea of creating stories to, quote, make other, my, the, the language that I had at eight years old was make other people happy. But the, if, if you dig deep under that, what it really was is helping other people feel safe, give them, give them somewhere to go when being at home was too scary. And my dreams when I was eight are, were of not being scared. And, and in particular, you know, whether it was zombies or vampires or dragons, it was having the strength to stand up to the monsters of my fantasies because I was powerless to stand up to the monster in my own home. And this is the kind of stuff you really only get to years and years and years later when you've done the work. But I was, it, I was told from a very young age that I was going to grow up and be a doctor or a lawyer or, or, you know, use my intellect to make money for the family, et cetera. And in my, in my own time in bed in the wolf hours of the night, when I was sitting there waiting for the next eruption, all I wanted to do was tell stories and, I have taken a very circuitous, windy road to get to that point, and I'm very, very happy and cannot feel anything other than grateful for every step along the way because I get to do just that. And every time I tell a story, every time I help people learn to tell a story, I'm not just giving them a gift, I'm receiving one. And what I do now, the way I use stories to help people is healing for that little boy. Could it be that by telling those stories, you are in fact fighting dragons for yourself and for others? And could it be that today you still see yourself as being the chosen one who is out there not only helping yourself, but also helping other people fight their dragons? Because in, in a curious sort of way, I think you're all, you sort of are living those dreams out today uh, with Dungeons and Dragons and being the chosen one? I would say that um, <clears throat> when I was younger and I was more fully in the grasp of um, the type of ego structure that needed to feel special, that needed to feel chosen because I was never chosen in my own life, I wanted to be Luke Skywalker. I wanted to be the one whose destiny it was to bring balance to the Force or whatever. And now we're all that person in our own lives. We are all the Luke Skywalker, King Arthur, or Harry Potter, or Dorothy Gale, or Daniel LaRusso. Um, and it's, an, it's an enough for me to be that in my own life rather than trying to be that to the world. And instead, I, I find great satisfaction not in trying to cast myself as the lead in someone else's movie quote, fallout boy. But uh, I, I take great pleasure to in being the Obi-Wan to someone else's Luke Skywalker. And, and I think that is something that we can all do. You know, we all, we all have to be the hero of our own stories, but if we're lucky, we get to serve as a mentor in someone else's. And, you know, I think that we're all the chosen one because we have the opportunity to choose ourselves. Hat tip, James Altucher. 
So yeah, I, I, um, I, I think that whatever it is we, we want to create, we can. And um, whether I've gotten here by, by blood or deed or, or if it's just pure coincidence and I'm able to, you know, I have the storytelling, storytelling acumen to retrofit everything to fit my narrative. Uh, either way, um, I'm good with where I am and I'm happy to help people get there. Speaking of which, the, one of the tail lines, I think it's on your website, I saw it. You wrote a comment that said, let's do something cool together and leave a dent in the universe. Is that the dent you want to leave, John? That, that final little piece you just left us with, is that the dent in your mind that you think about today in terms of your mission that you want to leave? Me personally, um, I, at the, at the end of my life, I would, I would like to have it said of me, he wrote a few good books rather than he had really high converting funnels. <laughs> and so, you know, I believe stories change people's lives and I'm very excited to have the opportunity to tell stories that affect people and teach people. Um, but that copy on my website is, you know, it, it's abstract. It's open to interpretation. For some people, leaving a dent in the universe is writing a book that will outlast them or is taking their business to another level so that they feel they've impacted their industry, starting a company uh, that changes things. Or it could be stepping into themselves and their power and being a better husband or father or daughter or, or friend so that they can leave a bigger impact, a more positive impact on the people in their own lives. The idea of, of leaving a dent in the universe, to me, for when, when I wrote that, I think I was talking specifically about legacy and all that exists after we're gone. Um, and I was probably thinking in pretty concrete financial and professional terms, but it's amazing what could change over the course of a year. And like Maya Angelou said, you know, word, I mean, just word, words are magic. And the great thing is that they, they have so many different meanings. And when I, when I read that line now, it's very clear that my definition of the universe and someone else's definition might not be the same. And that's what makes it beautiful because if I can, as I do now in the storytelling workshops and the, and the mentorships that I teach, if I can help someone figure out what it is they want to do and to do it, they can leave a dent in their version of whatever the universe is. And that doesn't mean that after they die, there will be a statue of them erected or buildings named in their honor. It can simply mean that they made the people in their lives laugh or they healed generational ancestral trauma and broke the cycle that they had been living in or they just showed up and whatever that means to the people that I work with, people who I work with, uh, the better, you know, we're not, we're not all going to write the next Amer great American novel or, you know, to, we're all not, we're not all writing Harry Potter or none of us are out here, you know, uh, surpassing the Godfather or whatever else. But I think that we can all leave a dent in the immediacy of the lives around us. And, and that's the most important thing. So to do something cool with you, to leave a dent, where do you send people? Where is the hub for your work, mate? 
The hub for my work is johnromanello.com. I have creatively claimed my own name as my URL and also (laughs) as my social media handle. And so if you want to connect with me, the easiest, fastest, and most reliable way to do it is via Instagram direct message. So just please slide up in the DMs. And if you're listening to this and, and there was something you got out of it, please do me a favor and just like screenshot it on your phone and post it and tag me in it in your stories because then I am even more likely to see it and I can reshare it and we can spread the message and uh, I would love to chat. So any questions or comments or conversations that you want to have, I am at your service now and always. John, this has been a fantastic discussion. I've really enjoyed hearing you today. It's been a real privilege being able to spend time with you. I know how much you got on your plate. You got us into your calendar and you just shared some wonderful learnings that we can take away. You've been truly of service. Thank you so much, mate, for everything you've shared today. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity. And thank you, everybody, for listening. So that's today's show. There are loads more incredible guests in the weeks ahead on the Inspiring Loves podcast. All the show notes can be found at athleticgreens.com. In the weeks ahead on Inspiring Loves, we'll sit down with loads more outstanding performers who share their recipe for how we can all live our own inspiring life. The Inspiring Lives podcast brought to you by Athletic Greens. New episodes out every other Monday morning. Tune in and subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or your favorite podcast platform.